Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Okay, if you have a Bible, would you please open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are back this week to our series on love. If you remember, we left off at verse uh, 7, which 7 ends with all of the all statements. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is perhaps the, the, the great, it is the greatest passage in all of literature on, on love. But it's not a definition of love. It is a description of the one who is love. And in verse 7, remember these four all statements. Paul says that we are to believe all things, or bear all things rather, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. And a couple of weeks ago I said if Paul was a college football coach, these would be the core values of his program. And he would probably say after every pregame or halftime talk, bear, trust, confidence, and grit. These are the things that are to mark you. And today, we'll go deeper. Verse 8. Love never ends. So if you're willing and able, let's stand together as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. To give the context, I'll read all of chapter 13. But we'll focus our thoughts just on the first three words of verse 8. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I put up, gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. 
Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13? We see it in Hallmark cards, this little sentimental definition of love. Oh, love. But it was for the Corinthians a stinging rebuke. And in verses 1 to 3, it shows us what they are. Verses 4 to 7 tells us what the, what the Corinthians were not. And in verse 8, Paul writes, Ha agape utipote pipte. Greek for love never ends. And the Greek word pipto which we translate here ends means to fail or to collapse. It's like scaffolding that holds us up. Paul says love is like the scaffolding that will never fall. And in this context, but Paul means that word to mean not just fade away or become obsolete or to fall or to fail, but he means this word to have the nuance of to end because in the rest of verse 8 and down through verses 9 and 10, what is he doing? He's comparing love to that which passes away. And so if some of you have an NIV or some of you have a King James Version, you may read that text and it says love never what? Fails. Some of you may memorize that when you were little. But the nuance of the Greek pipto actually means to end. Love continues. It's speaking about the duration of love. And Paul's point here is to say that while your gifts may end, while your talents may one day come to an end, love will not. And love is not a technique. It is the foundation upon which everything else as a Christian rests. And so what's, your, what's Paul's point here? Paul's point is that before you, O oh Christian, do love, you have to have a head-on collision with love. Before you can actually do what this passage calls us to do and to be, you have to meet love. You have to be confronted by love. And so in verse 8, when Paul says love never ends, Paul is saying you have to be confronted by love and then you have to be constructed by a new definition of love. So we're going to look at those two ideas together. What does it mean to be confronted by love? And what does it mean for us to be reconstructed by love? A love that never ends. Now when I was, uh, when I was in high school, uh, watching the Owasso High School football game Friday reminded me of this. There was a, I, there was a guy um, that was a linebacker for our team. <laughs> and um, his, his name was Richie Bosco. And um, when I was in seventh grade, Richie Bosco wanted to beat me up. And all the way through high school, we always kind of competed against each other. And the coach put me in as a running back one time for, I don't know, look at me, I don't know why. But he put me in as a running back rather than a wide receiver. And, and so we ran this trick play where I was to get the ball. And the problem was Richie Bosco was playing linebacker. And he was really good. And we ran the play three times. And I kid you not. I got tackled every single time by Richie Bosco. And when I read this passage, love never ends, I thought about, oh, Richie. Oh, Richie never ended. <laughs> he met me in every hole I tried to run through. The A gap, boom, Richie Bosco. The B gap, boom, Richie Bosco. And that's what love is like. And if you're going to do what this passage says, you have to be confronted by love. You have to meet him. So... To be confronted, you have to first meet him, and you have to be judged by the description of love. What does Paul mean? 
Well, I've been trying to introduce you for the last several weeks to what it means to meet love. And you've been trying to take back what I've been saying to make this a checklist again and again. Stop doing that. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a checklist of, okay, be kind, okay, be patient, okay, don't envy or boast. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a technique. It is a person. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you are not as your Savior is, who is patient with you to lead you out of your bickering and your competitive nature toward one another to become like Him. You're envious of each other. You boast in yourself. Jesus. Jesus is love. And whatever objections you may have this morning to Christianity, if you're here, those objections must be confronted by love himself, the Lord Jesus. I mean, I know that you want to use the church as your excuse. I know you want to use your past trauma in the church as your excuse. But you have to be confronted by love, who is Jesus, in order for you to begin to either rightfully push Christianity aside, should you choose to do that to your peril, or to embrace it. Because it's a relationship first. It's not a set of doctrines to be believed in. It's a person to be embraced and to be embraced by. So, for example, um, if you struggle over the Christian's treatment of, um, I don't know, you fill in the blank. Whatever just came to your mind, you put that in the blank. The Christian's treatment of blank. You must be confronted by love to get around that objection. You must say, what, how did Jesus treat blank? And you have to deal with how Jesus treated them. You have to be confronted by him again and again. And how did Jesus treat them? Jesus treated them with patience and kindness. He didn't envy or boast them. He wasn't arrogant or rude. To those to whom he could have been incredibly arrogant, he was humble. He was patient. Will he not also treat you the same way? Oh, he has. And he does so even this morning. He says to you, I am patient with you. Do you see me? I am not rude to you. I welcome you in all of your mess. Your secrets are not hidden to him. He knows you. He knows even that. And he says to you, I'm here. I'm here to confront you. Jesus really is for us. And one of the greatest obstacles to you growing in your relationship with Jesus is believing that is true because you don't believe it. You constantly want to take 1 Corinthians 13 and just like the whole of the Bible, you want to make it a checklist that you again begin to check off the things that you must do in order for God to be pleased with you because you think that you are so smart or so morally good that certainly you could tip the scales by your good deeds. And the truth of the whole of the Bible is that, brothers and sisters, those scales can only be balanced by one person, tipped by one man, and that this is the Lord Jesus himself. And unless we are hidden by faith in him, we will run our whole lives in utter disappointment. Because in the end, it's only his righteousness that counts for us. How will Jesus treat you? He will accept you. He confronts you, but you, to be confronted by love, you have to first meet him. I know you know about him. 
A lot of you know a lot about him, but have you met him? Do you know him? Many of you treat God like a subscription service. You pay your tithe, you give your time in order for services to be rendered unto you for your own comfort and delight. But friends, God is not a subscription service. He is waiting to embrace you with open arms. Stop pushing against his chest and saying, no, no, I'm not lovable enough. Yes, you are. He died for you so that you could be confronted by him and be embraced. He wants to know you. Would you be willing to let me introduce you to him? Paul has been trying to do that for the last four weeks as we've looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he does it again this morning in this text. So to be confronted by love, you first have to meet him. Lay down your objections and meet him. Him. Not knowledge about him. Him. And secondly, to be confronted, you have to be judged by this description of love. Now, the whole of the Old Testament is an application of this description of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. These are the aspects of God throughout all of the Old Testament toward his people, isn't it? And what did God call? He summed up the Old Testament law with the Shema. If you're an Israelite or you grew up going to the synagogue, or do you know this word if you grew up Jewish? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is love. What's the next line? You shall serve the Lord your God? No, no, no. What's it say? You shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That sums up the whole of the Old Testament law. And so let me illustrate this by... Uh, thinking about uh, Paul himself. Paul, before Paul was Paul, before he wrote this book, he was named by his parents after whom? Saul, King Saul. Saul of, before Paul was Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And he was named after King Saul, who is the first king of Israel. And he is perhaps one of the greatest figures of tragedy in all of literature. Do you remember, do you remember King Saul, the story of King Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 8 and 9? Israel was begging Samuel, the last judge, for a king. We want to be like the other nations. We want to be like the other nations. And Samuel warned them against being like the other nations. But, but Paul, uh, but, but God gave uh, Israel a king and told Samuel, you should anoint the son of Kish. And let's give Israel exactly what they want. Who did they want? They wanted somebody to represent them. And so they got the most tall, dark, and handsome person they could in the kingdom. And the text says that Paul was so handsome, there was none other that compared to him. And he stood head and shoulders above the rest of the crowd. 1 Samuel chapter 9, 2, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. But rather than honor God, what did King Saul do? Thank you for that anointing, Samuel. Paul made rash vows. Saul made rash vows. And Saul gave himself to all the dalliances of being a king. And he made the kingdom about him rather than about the Lord. He went so far as to, to beg for worship of himself from his people. And Samuel says finally, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices Saul as in obeying his voice? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen, that is to listen to him in prayer, is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and the presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. King Saul turned the Old Testament not into a relationship with Yahweh to be embraced, but a checklist of things that he must do. And he became curved in on himself, consumed by it. Trying to become the moral great king that he never could be. And he grew proud and he was a tremendous example of Greek tragedy even before Greek tragedies came into existence. What irony. And Jews missed it because they saw King Saul as being exemplary in his obedience to the law in some ways. And they named their little boys after King Saul. And even this couple in Tarsus named Paul after Saul. And like King Saul, Saul of Tarsus became great. He was a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the top in his class at Harvard Synagogue. He was the best of the best. He was the one who knew theology better than anybody. But Paul had to be confronted by love. So much so that on his way to persecute Christians in Acts chapter 9 verse 6, what happens? He's on his horse and a blaze of light comes down while he's riding on the way and it knocks him off of his horse, blinded by light. And a voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what does, what does Saul say in response? He says, Curios, Lord, who are you? And shocked, King Saul Saul of Tarsus hears a lot of Saul's and Paul's. You be up here. <laughs> Saul of Tarsus hears him say, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. So what's going on here? Saul is confronted by love. Saul is literally confronted by a light that confronts him by love and knocks him off of his horse. And God, of course, knows um, why Saul is persecuting his people. But he still asks him. Why does he do that? Why does he ask Adam in the garden, where are you? God knows where Adam is. Because God asks questions because he knows that we vie for control. And so he's going to give us the ball. He's going to pose to us the question. And he poses to you the question this morning, why do you take the Bible and make a checklist out of it? Why do you constantly compare yourself to other people? Why do you, when you get on Facebook, why do you get sucked in to wishing your life was different than it really is? Or Instagram, or Snapchat, or fill in the blank, please, for me, everything I'm missing. It's because our hearts are bent to make checklists out of relationships. And this church is dead meat if we do that together. If you're going to be confronted by love, you first have to meet him. And in order to meet him, you have to be judged by the description here of love. Paul learns, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, learns that the whole of the Old Testament was not meant to be a checklist. It was to introduce to us a person who is infinitely holy and beautiful, who calls us in light of his holiness to live in a distinct and a unique way marked off from the ways of the world. 
And so God is not to be used like a subscription service that you simply obey what he asks you to do and you're good with God and you get services rendered for your obedience. God is like a person who's trying to embrace you and welcome you in. But unless you're judged by this standard, you won't allow yourself to be embraced by it. And when you're judged by this standard, patience, kindness, envy, boasting, arrogant, rude, when you realize that you do not measure up to those things, you're beginning to get the gospel. One of the hardest things about being a minister in this city is that everybody thinks they know the gospel. And I know that's true in the city because I think I know the gospel. And I need to be reminded again and again and again that I even take God's, the relationship that he extends to me and I say, no God, I'm not lovable enough. I need to do this. I need to lead my family better. I need to get the church to do this. I need to do, and God just says, stop it. Would you just receive my embrace? And let me remind you, if you are here last week, as Pastor Jonathan said, that I sing over you with my love. You can never measure up to my holy standard. Until you're able to be judged by this description of love, you, you won't be confronted. And you need to be confronted by love. And when you're judged by his love, by the standards of who love is, you're able to respond and the only response is faith and repentance. Because you can't possibly measure up to it. So if you're here today and you have constantly checked the boxes, would you consider that by His Spirit He is enabling you to lay your deadly doings down and to rest in His presence gloriously complete because of what He has done for you? That is good news. And when you're confronted by love, you have to meet Him, you have to be judged by the description of love, then you can be constructed or reconstructed by love. And to be reconstructed by love, you have to be embraced by the man of love. Love never ends. Ha agape udipote pipte. Where is love building you up? Where is love constructing you? How do we know that this is about construction? Because when Paul uses this word earlier in 1 Corinthians, he talks about love in terms of a construction project. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love constructs you. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. In other words, if you're going to know God, it means that you've been embraced by God. You have to be embraced by the man of love. When, when, Paul, when Paul disappears after his uh, confrontation with Jesus on the road to Damascus, remember? Where does he go? He goes for three years into Damascus. And I would, have, I would love to have known what Paul did during those three years. But when he comes back, where does he come? He, gets, he, he is embraced by Jesus himself to be reconstructed. And where does he go? He immediately goes to meet the apostles and meet the disciples of Jesus. How easy it is for some of you, when you have a personal relationship with Jesus, to say, I'm good with Jesus, but I don't need his church. But even Paul, even Paul who persecuted Christians, where did he go? He came to the church. 
He went to God's people because he knew that to be constructed in love, he had to be in the church. And so, to some of you, let me just speak to several of you very personally. I have heard your stories of trauma in the church. I know that you've been hurt by the church. I am so sorry. But if you've been harmed in the community of the church, you can only be healed in community of the church. I can't say that enough. Because everything in us I mean, there was a time I remember preaching one Sunday at Trinity and I saw five youth ministers who've been hurt by the churches in this church. I didn't know they were going to be here, but they're here because they're healing. And praise God for them. Why? Because they're, they are being healed in the only environment in which you can be healed. If you've been hurt by the church, you can only be healed by the church. And that is incredibly scary. Do you remember, um, do you remember that great philosophical movie, Top Gun? Do you remember when, when Mab and Goose are flying and, and remember they go down and, 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 and remember what does the commanding officer say about Maverick when he returns to the ship? Get him back up there. Get him back flying as soon as you can. Why? Get him back because where the trauma was experienced you've got to get him back. And I know for some of you that is incredibly hard. And that's why the Lord gives us each other to help. And so, friends, if you've been wounded by the church or if you're in college and you're like, yeah, the church is, you know, kind of a bonus for me. No, it's not. It is God's ordained way to help you grow in your college years. Teenagers, the church is not your mom and dad's. The church is yours. It is the way that you are to grow in your time as a teenager. This is where God intends to heal you. Why? Because he reconstructs you in his community of faith. Love never ends. It's like Richie Bosco. No matter what hole you go through, he's going to meet you. It will never end. He will find you out. He sees you. He knows you. And he's coming for you. You can run, but you cannot. And you are trying so hard to hide. What's interesting about love is that when you've been um, reconstructed by love because you've been embraced by the man of love, the Lord Jesus, only then is your love able to not run out. Because you love people in proportion to the way they serve you. As long as they're giving you affection, we tend to love them well. As long as they're providing for us, we tend to love them well. But what happens when their provision for us stops? What happens when their affection for us stops? What happens when the romance ends? What happens when you don't get back anything and you're called to pour out? Love never ends. What do we do with that? The only way you can continue to love is if you know that you've been embraced by the man of love and you are so captivated by that love that you can love that person even when they are almost impossible to imagine loving. When couples come to me for premarital counseling, I talk to them about their wedding vows. And one of the things I say to them is, when you say, till death do us part, I want you to imagine for a moment that your husband or wife is in a terrible accident. And they are made, they are in a vegetative state for the rest of their life. And you're married to them. Are you ready for that? 
Like, I know you're like romantically turned on by them right now. But could you serve them all the days of your life if that was removed and that you had to care and love them? Lauren and I watched this show, This Is Us. And there's this, in the final, um, the last one we watched, in the final season of that show, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a scene where, um, anybody watch that show? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, great. One of you. So This Is Us <laughs> is a family. It shows growing through the generations. And long story short, the protagonist is this father exemplar. His name is Jack, who, who tragically dies in the story. Sorry, I'm sorry. But he dies. First season. And in the last season, Rebecca, the mother, is married to Miguel, who is Jack's best friend. Oh, it's still a good show. Keep watching it. And Miguel, Miguel is trying so hard to love this woman and she has late onset dementia and and the story of Rebecca's life is that her last years are incredibly hard and Miguel is faithful to her and he 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 she she walks out one night and she's outside in the snow and he goes out to get her to bring her back inside he slips and falls and and he never tells anybody about it and and he is falling apart physically while he cares for this woman who's falling apart mentally and Miguel needs Rebecca he needs to be needed and the children come to him. And, and Rebecca's children say, Miguel, you have been a good husband to mom. You've done enough. And he says, every, the first thing she sees every morning is my face. I've got to be faithful to my vows. And they say to him, oh, Miguel, you have been. <laughs> it is time for us to let someone else care for you. And it's a beautiful picture of how love never ends because even though Rebecca is not the same woman that he married, he cares for her all the days of her life. And if you're married, that is our call together. You're to love them all the way through. And Jesus is the one who's saying to you, hey, you're doing enough. Let me carry you. Let me help you. And you can rest in his arms as he embraces you and he welcomes you. The last thing I'll say about, about love reconstructing us is that I could talk about uh, friendship. I could talk about setting your own limits. I could talk about parenting. If you want my notes, I'll give them to you. It's all here. Let me just talk very briefly about grief. One instrumental step toward grieving is that you're able to comfort others with the comfort that you yourselves have received. It's one of the last steps, but it's an important step. And Paul says later to the same church in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in grief, in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort Two, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endured the same suffering that we suffer. When you learn to be embraced by the man of love, you're able to love in a way that never ends because you stop loving people for the happiness and joy they give you, and you start loving them for their joy and happiness. You start giving your life for their sake. You start seeing that you're able to comfort them with the comfort that you yourself have received from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he extends to you this. He will confront you. He's pursuing you. He is after you. And he will not let you go. Jonathan Edwards says that love never ends because God's character is endlessly beautiful. And we will plumb the depths of his grace and love for all eternity. And as C.S. Lewis says, every chapter of eternity is better than the one before. Each meal with Jesus will taste better than the one before. Each embrace of him will be warmer than the one before. And we see glimpses of this in his resurrection. But our minds are limited and they are finite. Our imaginations cannot even dream of how amazing it is to be embraced by him. But do you know him? He's confronting you. Would you meet him? Would you be judged by his description of love and would you allow him to get his arms around you and say my love never ends welcome child and may we for all eternity say I never knew his love could be so beautiful thank you for listening to our podcast if you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of trinity please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.